Hello and welcome back to another episode of Everything Athletes. I'm your host, Kim Carducci, former Division I swimmer turned existential thinker. In today's episode, titled, What I Learned from Reading the IOC's Mental Health Report, I'm going to review everything I learned, things that surprised me, content that stood out about the IOC's 2019 total analysis of mental health in elite athletes. Before getting into today's episode, Follow along with Everything Athletes for all of the content we're producing about mental health for competitors. You can check out our website, everythingathletes.com. We're also on all social media like Instagram and Twitter. Everything Athletes is an online refuge, you know, an online safe haven, specifically covering the topics of defeat, injury, and retirement, but also looking at mental health as a whole, what the statistics are, what it actually looks like, what the trends are, um, and how the coaches, parents, fans, systems, and organizations, how they're actually helping support athlete mental health because it looks a little bit dismal right now. So let's get into today's episode. So in 2019, the International Olympic Committee put together this group to basically look at everything mental health in elite athletes up to today's day, or in that time it was 2019. So they met in Switzerland. There were a number of different athletes, therapists, PhDs involved in aggregating this research so that thankfully, you know, the world of sports could have some sort of current total analysis of what's actually going on with mental health in sports. So it's amazing that this committee did this. I'm so grateful for the IOC and the people behind this report and behind this consensus to actually let people know what's actually going on and what the data points actually are. So as far as I know, it's the most comprehensive current total report of mental health in elite athletes. So uh, I thought it would be interesting to read the many, many pages of the report and actually share what I learned from reading their report. So let's get into it. The title of the report is Mental Health in Elite Athletes. International Olympic Committee Consensus Statement 2019. And I'll include links to the report below. So in this report, they define elite athletes as athletes that compete at the collegiate, professional, or Olympic level. And they define mental health disorders as conditions causing clinically significant distress or impairment that meet certain diagnostic criteria. And just to set the scene for what the report was trying to do, what they set out to accomplish, I'm going to read the abstract of the report. It's two paragraphs, so I'll read the abstract, and then I'll read the three tasks that the committee was charged with uh, covering in the report. So here's the abstract. Mental health symptoms and disorders are common among elite athletes, may have sport-related manifestations within this population, and impair performance. Mental health cannot be separated from physical health, as evidenced by mental health symptoms and disorders increasing the risk of physical injury and delaying subsequent recovery. There are no evidence or consensus-based guidelines for diagnosis and management of mental health symptoms and disorders in elite athletes. Diagnosis must differentiate character traits particular to elite athletes from psychosocial maladaptations. 
Management strategies should address all contributors to mental health symptoms and consider biopsychosocial factors relevant to athletes to maximize benefit and minimize harm. Management must involve both treatment of affected individual athletes and optimizing environments in which all elite athletes train and compete. To advance a more standardized, evidence-based approach to mental health symptoms and disorders in elite athletes, an International Olympic Committee consensus work group critically evaluated the current state of science and provided recommendations. So that just kind of sets the scene what they were trying to do. They're basically saying there's no one method or one way, one source to combat or treat or manage mental health in elite athletes. And they were trying to aggregate all this data to set the scene of what it looks like, what to do, what are some of the best recommendations for clinicians. So the three things the committee was charged with doing, the three tasks, were one, to review literature describing prevalence, diagnosis, and impact on athletic performance of mental health symptoms and disorders within elite athletes. Two, to review literature describing and establishing recommendations for non-pharmacological and pharmacological management of mental health symptoms and disorders within elite athletes. And then three, to provide recommendations on how to minimize negative impacts of the sport environment on mental health symptoms and disorders in elite athletes. So pretty large tasks. They're trying to describe prevalence, you know, put the numbers behind what it actually looks like. Is it 10% of athletes that suffer from depression? Is it 90% of athletes that suffer from depression? So they're trying to kind of paint the picture of what mental health and sports actually looks like. And then along with that, provide the best recommendations and minimize that negative impact of ignoring athletes' mental health because we don't know what it actually looks like or how to actually treat it. So let's dive into what I learned from reading this report. The first thing right off the bat that really stuck out in reading this was the significance that there are just so many research gaps that still exist on this topic. And I say still, I guess I shouldn't stay still because only in the past few years, really, I mean, maybe 10 years, but really just the past few years, mental health has become more of a mainstream topic. So it's sad, but it makes sense why there has not been resources allocated to researching this topic and actually diving in and digging into the studies and finding statistics and data points on mental health and elite athletes. So in this report, I actually counted 34 times where some form of the phrase, there's not enough research, the research studies are not great sources of data, the available studies are flawed, the available studies are limited, the rates of XYZ are unknown, you know, some form or iteration of having sparse data or not having studies done. I counted 34 times. I'm sure I missed a few, so it's probably a little bit higher than 34. But throughout this report, so many instances of that phrase just made it apparent that we really need to grow research in this topic now. And unfortunately, research is something that takes forever to do. It's not going to get done in a year. 10 years is maybe more an ideal timeline for that. But it was very apparent in all of the data and statistics and everything that they're looking at among all the symptoms and disorders, there's just not enough research. So that was the very first thing I noted. And 
with that, there I do mention some statistics and data points throughout this episode. So take those with a grain of salt, because from what I just said, sh- yeah, we have some studies and we have some numbers, but it's not totally credible because we just don't have the wide pool of data that we would like. And I also want to say on that point too, this is no fault of the people who conducted this study in the first place. Again, I'm so grateful to even have this report to read and have this report to reference. They did an amazing job compiling all the data. It's just apparent that in the world of sports, independent of these people, research gaps exist. And they did list a few reasons why this is the case. So here are four reasons that they list for why there are research gaps. The first one, most studies in elite athletes have lacked reference groups from the general population. Two, different instruments have been used to assess mental health symptoms and disorders compared with the general population. Three, studies do not necessarily consider cross-cultural differences in meanings and manifestations of mental health symptoms and disorders. And then four, studies vary in whether they describe self-reported specific mental health symptoms or clinically physician-diagnosed disorders. So those are some of the reasons why it's hard to have accurate data. But let's go through some of the initial data points right off the bat. So mental health disorders occur in 5 to 35% of elite athletes. Again, take these numbers with a grain of salt. I believe it's higher than 35%, especially when it comes to self-reporting. Athletes are a group of people that are very good at hiding perceived flaws and being perfect and hiding things that could be going wrong. That's part of the stigma. That's part of everything going on with mental health and sports. So even though in this report it says 5 to 35%, I would argue it's much higher than that. But that's a current data point we have. Mental health disorders occur between 5 to 35%. Another data point, the prevalence of mental health symptoms and disorders among male athletes from team sports. So sports like cricket, football, handball, ice hockey, and rugby. They vary from about 5% for burnout and adverse alcohol use to nearly 45% for anxiety and depression. Among collegiate athletes, the prevalence of mental health disorders ranges from 10% to 25% for depression and eating disorders. And then they also list four reasons why elite athletes may experience a greater overall risk for experiencing mental health symptoms and disorders. So their four reasons are one, because in sports you have severe musculoskeletal injuries that can be detrimental. Two, Because of those injuries, you have to undergo multiple surgeries. Three, athletes suffer from decreased sport performance, right? I'm sure if you're an athlete listening to this, you've probably experienced a season or two where you plateaued and didn't quite improve. That's a vulnerable period. And then four, athletes tend toward maladaptive perfectionism. So being hypercritical, having this black and white thinking, if it's not perfect, it's terrible. So with these symptoms and disorders throughout the document, I noticed the best recommendation for treatment is CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. That was the treatment. That was the strategy that came up for just about every disorder and was the most recommended one. So 
take that as a piece of advice. If any athlete is struggling with any of these symptoms or any of these disorders, seeking a therapist that specializes in CBT is the best recommended treatment option. And then just a couple thoughts about treating and managing mental health symptoms from the report as well. So they say to manage mental health in athletes, it needs to take a comprehensive total individual approach, covering the topics in someone's life, including the emotional, the mental, the physical, the social, the spiritual, and the environmental influences that may affect a person's mental health. So it's a total approach to that individual, not just, oh, you're experiencing anxiety, let's solely focus on that. To really support mental health, you need to take an integrative management approach. Psychotherapy is super effective, but often underprescribed. Little research exists on the different psychotherapeutic treatments for substance abuse disorders. Substance abuse is a large one they talk about in this report. And elite athletes may present with sport-related issues that may pose a challenge in psychotherapy and make it more difficult to tailor therapeutic interventions. Things like aggression, they say athletes are more likely to be aggressive, narcissistic, entitled, and then there are some diagnostic challenges. For example, the difference between overtraining and depression they can look similar, right? If you're overtraining, you're fatigued all the time, you're super tired, you're kind of burnt out. Some of those symptoms overlap with depression. So there's a bit of a diagnostic challenge in deciphering which one is which. But let's get into the actual symptoms and disorders. And in this report, they choose and break down 11. So the 11 mental health symptoms and disorders covered in the consensus are sleep disorders and sleep concerns, major depressive disorder and depression symptoms, suicide, anxiety and related disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder and other trauma-related disorders, eating disorders, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, bipolar and psychotic disorders, sport-related concussion, substance abuse and substance abuse disorders, and then finally, gambling disorder and other behavioral addictions. So let's start with the first one, sleep disorders and concerns. So according to the NCAA, their surveys, they indicate that over half of collegiate athletes in the USA report regularly getting insufficient sleep. So 50% of collegiate athletes report sleeping less than seven hours of sleep per night. And seven hours, that's kind of the marker of what they say is good sleep. Seven hours at least is what an athlete needs, an adult really, but an athlete. And then 79% of those collegiate athletes report eight hours or less. So sufficient sleep is so important because it helps avoid overtraining. It helps avoid that fatigue. Of course, if you're sleeping well and you're sleeping long, you're gonna be energized and you're gonna be able to combat some of these symptoms but it specifically helps your body with supplying testosterone and growth hormone, which is necessary for recovery. They talk about a person's chronotype, which I thought was pretty interesting. A chronotype is the degree to which an individual is naturally a morning or evening person. I think that's interesting. For me, I'm definitely a night owl. I've grown to appreciate the mornings as I've gotten older and have been removed from sport, but 
I'm definitely someone who feels more energy at night when everything's dark. I don't know. It's just I was born at night. Maybe that has something to do with it. But it's interesting how a person's chronotype can affect their efficiency when they're training or competing. If your matches or games or tournaments are in the morning and your chronotype is to be a morning person, you might do better and perform better than if your game was at 8 p.m. and you're a morning person. So that I thought that was interesting. Um, they do talk about insomnia disorder, which is having difficulty sleeping at least three nights a week. And that's a major risk factor for other mood and mental health disorders. And they actually say insomnia disorder may be super common among elite athletes, actually citing that about 64% of Olympic athletes reported significant insomnia symptoms, which I guess that makes sense. You know, gearing up to competition, especially the Olympics, you might have so many nerves and jitters and pressure that you're, you're not sleeping well. That makes sense. Um, and then for treatment of insomnia disorder and some of these sleep disorders and sleep concerns, they recommend melatonin as the best studied sleep aid in athletes. So building a melatonin regimen. Um, and then they also recommend CBT. I will reference that a lot. That's the common and, and most recommended form of treatment, cognitive behavioral therapy. And then for sleep apnea, where your pathways and airways are obstructed, they recommend positive airway pressure therapy. And they say sleep apnea is typically correlated with athletes or individuals with a higher body mass, and therefore football players have a higher prevalence of sleep apnea than other sports. They also recommend utilizing a questionnaire validated for use in athletes to help identify who may need further sleep assessment. So asking questions such as, are you getting enough sleep? Do you feel rested in the mornings? What time do you go to bed? What time do you wake up? Uh, to help build a baseline of what that person's sleep pattern actually is. And then their final recommendation, they have four recommendations for promoting better sleep habits and better sleep patterns with the team. The first one starts with the coaches. So have the coaches model their training schedule around healthy sleep patterns. The second one, encourage healthy sleep as part of the training protocol. The third one is to promote sleep health education. And the fourth one is to engage in proactive tracking and monitoring of sleep. So that's what I learned about the sleep disorders. Let's move on to the next one. Major depressive disorder and depression symptoms. So they define this as experiencing a depressed mood and or little interest or pleasure from activities on most days over at least a two week period. And this one as a disorder is hard to treat and really work with because Elite athletes, they say they may not even acknowledge or seek support in part related to the stigma. And the prevalence of depressive symptoms in elite athletes ranges from 4% to 68%, which is very high in my opinion. So out of 100 athletes, 68 of them are experiencing symptoms of depression. Female athletes may be twice as likely to report depressive symptoms as male athletes. And then this I thought was super interesting. French athletes who took part in aesthetic or fine motor skill sports were at greater risk of experiencing depressive symptoms than those who took part in team ball sports. Like why? That's interesting. And then among North American athletes, track and field athletes had the highest rates of major depressive disorder 
compared with those in other collegiate sports. And depressive symptoms may be more prevalent in individual sport athletes compared with team sport athletes. I think that generally makes sense. If you have a team, you have more of that community feel than if you're a tennis player or golfer or swimmer and you're doing it all on your own. Some of the risk factors associated with depressive symptoms and MDD are genetic factors, environmental factors, injury, competitive failure, retirement from sport, pain, and concussion. So treating depression and treating depressive symptoms, there is an instrument called the Barron Depression Screener, and it's designed for athletes to self-report if they are experiencing symptoms of depression. It's a questionnaire. It has 10 questions on it, and if an athlete goes through the 10 questions and marks yes for at least five of them, then the recommendation is to seek help from a mental health professional. Okay, the next one. Suicide. So, in the largest study of suicide in elite collegiate student athletes in the USA, 7.3% of all deaths were attributed to suicide. And last I read outside of this report, suicide was the third leading cause of death among student athletes. I think the first two were cardiac issues and accidental, you know, accidents. So, the mean age of suicide was 20 years old for student athletes. And male collegiate athletes who participated in American football were at greatest risk. And so to promote better help-seeking behaviors and to potentially reduce risk of suicide, they recommend building a greater awareness of the risk factors for suicide, especially among coaches, medical professionals, and others who work with the athlete. So the strategies that they recommend uh, that should be considered in conjunction with treatment for mental health symptoms and disorders are the forward. One, improving social networks. Two, athletic and personal life balance. Three, team cohesion. And four, coach and team expectations. And moving on from just the active athletes to retired athletes, they say careful consideration must be given to both mental and other medical aspects of health while addressing social isolation and other stressful aspects of transition from sport. So the big piece that they hone in on, which is a risk factor for suicide in retired athletes, is that social isolation piece. So having the athletes retire, go on with their life, feel like they're not related to, feel like they're not competing anymore, they're not as glorious and all these things, that social isolation piece is a strong risk factor for suicide in retired athletes. Okay, the next one, anxiety and related disorders. So I thought some of these statistics were very low. Of course, it makes sense if there's not enough research out there and there are research gaps, it makes sense why some of this data is not totally accurate. But they say generalized anxiety disorder, GAD, in elite athletes ranges from 6% for a clinician-confirmed diagnosis to 14.6% using self-report measures. And keep in mind, GAD is not performance anxiety. It's not other types of anxiety. It's just the generalized anxiety disorder. So I thought it would have been much higher for some reason. I I didn't know it was that low of a percentage for GAD in elite athletes. But again, it doesn't take into account performance anxiety. So symptom ratings tend to be higher for female athletes than male athletes. And injured athletes appear to report more severe GAD symptoms than non-injured counterparts, which totally makes sense. If you're injured, it just sucks. 
So here are the self-reported estimates. 14.67% of athletes experience social anxiety, 5.2% OCD, and 4.5% panic disorder. I thought it was also interesting how some medications that could treat anxiety are not recommended. They say, for example, beta blockers, they're actually prohibited because they improve fine motor control. And so for sports like billiards, archery, golf, shooting, and some skiing, that's actually a competitive advantage. So some medications to actually treat anxiety are prohibited for elite athletes because of that. And then ultimately with treatment for anxiety, the best recommendation is CBT. There is so much content here going through the 2019 IOC consensus report. We're going to have to break this out into a couple episodes, maybe three episodes. So stay tuned for next week where we dive into the additional mental health symptoms and disorders in elite athletes. And I share the data that I learned from reading this report. Until next time.